0: On the Empire podcast this week, director Dean DeBlois teaches us how to train his dragon. Well, Begin Again starring Kira Knightley, that's much easier to say. Drop us by for a good old sing-song, plus all the usual movie news and nonsense. On the only movie podcast, is Beyond Saving by Tim Howard. Hello, pod. I'm Chris Hewitt. Welcome to the Empire podcast. As ever, I'm joined by three of my learned... Hang on. Wait a minute, I'm not... Oh, There's only two of you. Yeah. I'm just joined by two of my learned colleagues this week. Uh, first up is our art house guru, Phil Disimlin, a man who came to an improv night with team empire at the comedy store london just the other day I saw the comedy store players and when the host richard french of whose name's anyway fame yeah. aka richard french at the piano asked for some suggestions of film genres to act out phil actually said i shit you not check new wave so there's a man who's embraced the stereotyping foisted upon him by the podcast Extraordinary, hell yes! And do you know what he said? What is That he say? would be one film. That would be one film. I'm
1: well, beg, wrong. Film. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I beg to differ. <laughs> I beg to differ, and so would Yuri Menzel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, cool. And even Passer. And Milosh Foreman, but let's not get bogged down in the minutia.
0: Next up, we have our geek queen Helen O'Hara, who actually shouted out something and got it incorporated into the show, didn't you? What did you shout out?
2: A ladle.
0: A ladle.
1: And they how- asked
2: for a household object.
0: There was a whole bit when
1: they got brave. They, they mentioned brave as a Disney film. As a Disney film, rather that was than a Pixar film. Upsetting. When you had to be held back. I did. You? I, I did have to be Strained held back.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: With the ladle.
2: From shouting out. That's not a Disney movie. It's Pixar. Same way people think that Planes is a Pixar movie, and it's Disney.
0: The lines are blurring. Mm. The lines are blurring uh, for people who don't know no, what they're talking no, about. No, no, let's <laughs> okay. talk about right, that, song. Let's get into your questions. Uh, I've been so disorganised this week that not only have I lost a member of the pod team uh, down the back of the sofa, I don't know who sent this question in. So no, I apologise. I apologise. If you know, if, if, if it was you, then ask me on Twitter. Uh, anyway, the person in question says, you list your 25 worst films of our lifetime. Mm. That's pointed out, of our lifetime. In the latest issue of Empire Yes we do But what's your best Worst film Troll 2 Shark Attack 3 I'm going to run through The list very quickly These are the 25 Worst films of our lifetime uh, As for by us I guess 25 Showgirls 24 Colour of Night The Bruce Willis film Where you see his Willie. 23 uh, Glitter Mariah Carey's Glitter Which was described As heroically bad In Empire 22 Highlander 2 The Quickening it's not that bad, is it? It is. 21, Van Helsing. Van Helsing!
2: It's pretty bad. It's
0: pretty bad, but it's not even a one-star film. 20, Town and Country, the Warren Beatty disaster. 19, Jack Frost, the Michael Keaton Jack Frost, as opposed to the scary snowman, uh, evil horror Jack Frost. 18, uh, Gigli, which I quite uh, enjoyed the Al Pacino cameo. So, yeah. uh, 17, Movie 43. Uh, yep, 16, Batman and Robin, only 16. 15, Boxing Helena. 14, The Wicker Man, the Illabutsa Wicker Man. 13, Love's Kitchen, the... Um, <laughs> (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Kitchen Rom-Com starring um, uh, Doug Ray Scott uh, with a cameo from Gordon Ramsay Uh, 12 Catwoman 11 Sex Lives with the Potato Men 10 Battlefield Earth Truly Awful 9 The Avengers What?! The other one. Oh, the other one. Okay, thank God. Uh, Number eight, uh, Super Mario Brothers. Uh, Seven, Swept Away. Six, House of the Dead. Five, Dungeons and Dragons. Truly dreadful. Uh, Four, Supernova. Walter Hill's Supernova, with help from Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, Three, The Master of Disguise. Really? No love girl? Two, Freddy Got Fingered. And one, yes, I agree with this, Michael Winner's extraordinary final film, Parting Shots which I don't know if you've ever seen it. Have you ever seen it? Anyone here seen it? No, I've avoided that. Oh, my God. I'm something of a Michael Winter connoisseur. (laughs) And I'd seen his previous film prior to that, Dirty Weekend, which is absolutely shocking. But Parting Shots really brings things to a new level. It's extraordinarily bad. stars Chris Rhea of Driving Home for Christmas fame as a... uh, No
2: one like. But you liked that song, Chris. You're the only one. I like it. It's on...
0: Now that's why I call no on the beach though a very Christmassy Christmas. All the Christmas hits. Chris Rhea's driving home for Christmas and spend Christmas with Chris Rhea and his family. All those albums. You not got those uh, albums? The They're worst great albums. albums. They're anyway. the best albums in the world. Driving home
1: for Christmas. Please, it's
2: bad enough every <laughs> I year. I can't wait to see
0: those faces.
1: Anyway, so uh, <laughs> <is that laughs> Peter, Peter Laurie with bronchitis.
2: No, no, why uh, would you say uh, that name? Uh, oh, no. Uh. <laughs> oh,
1: it's it would, cleared up. It's it would appear
0: up. that the fourth member of the podcast team <laughs> has arrived just in time, Helen. Hey, how's it going? Oh, she's curving her ears. Okay, anyway, sorry. Parting shots is dreadful. Uh, Chris Rhea stars as a guy who is diagnosed with terminal cancer and he has six weeks left to live. So he decides, naturally, to go on a killing spree. Uh, <laughs> sure. Killing everyone who's wronged him in his life, including John Cleese, um, Oliver Reed's in it as a hitman. Sir Ben Kingsley pops up at one point as a restaurant critic uh, who gets killed. It's truly, truly... Oh, Diana Rigg is in it. She's oh, it's just one of the worst films you've ever seen in your entire life. Nothing works about it. Chris Rea is so bad, it almost made me want to delete my Driving Home for Christmas MP3.
2: See, I think some of these are legitimately awful, irredeemable films. And some of them, I think they're here really more because they represent a massive waste of talent. I think Van Helsing, the basic idea, the basic casting utterly fine the story utterly bobbins there's an idea that just completely didn't get executed batman and robin well yeah but i mean there was talent there you know just really really badly used talent and i think that's kind of the offensive thing Mm. about some of these whereas something like i don't know maybe well parting shots for sure but maybe sex lives of the potato men didn't have quite so much going for it even on paper um, and we didn't maybe have quite such high expectations yeah I mean in terms of best worst films I I don't go back to the truly dire very often I mean I have my sort of guilty pleasures Need for Speed I can see myself watching if it turns up on TV even though that's a terrible film Mm. but the truly irredeemable likes of these I mean they're not even enjoyable on a bad level. Shark Attack 3 though I have seen and that is so ridiculous it's kind of fun. There's enough hilarity in that. Laughing at rather than with I would say but it's you know it's got something going for it.
0: Infamous for John Barrowman's extraordinary line, isn't it? What's the line? He, there's literally a point where he's uh, he, John Barrowman is talking to the, the, the lead actress in the film, and out of nowhere, yeah. they're just having a conversation about something, coral reefs or something, and suddenly he goes, So, what do you say? I take you home and. What is it? What do you say? Well, yeah, what do you say? I take you home and eat out your pussy. What? And yeah. he just says that. He sells it. Barrowman sells it. Uh, you know,
2: but... I'm, I'm pretty sure he thought this would end up on a blooper reel. I <laughs> yeah. genuinely think he threw that in there, thinking this will make the crew laugh. Yeah. And yet here we are, and it's in the final cut. But it cuts to them actually having sex. Sure it does. So
1: even one line, even one moment, then that can condemn your film to, uh, <clears throat> to the sort of annals of cinema. Room 101. I was having a think about Tango and Cash as I want to do Tango. In, on a on a morning Cash. of a morning. Have you seen that film recently? No, not recently. Not. Uh, I used to love it when I was. Um, is it a, a, is a it a bad? Is it as bad as I remember? I, I, oh, don't, I don't remember it being bad. I remember it being be bad. It's
2: got Kurt <laughs> Russell in it's it. It's not good though. I
1: remember wow. being uh, awesome. Um, there's a sequence. There's a, there's a there's a scene in it where they're in the showers together. Yes, there is. And Stallone. Is standing with his back to Kurt Russell and Kurt Russell bends down. Yes. And Stallone steps back in horror and goes, What are you, what are you doing? He's just, and Kurt Russell brings himself up and goes, Number one, soap. Number two, don't flatter yourself.
0: <laughs> I remember that.
1: Yes. i what, what is he thinking? What's going to happen in this scenario? He's just going <laughs> to. So 80s and wrong. Michael Caine's film suspends two categories, right? The, the good ones
0: and the, and the just, but he hasn't done the drag. But how many clunkers has he done oh, in Empire's him. lifetime? Is Jaws the Revenge? Does this have lifetime? to be an Empire's lifetime? Yes, because it's twenty-five worst films of our lifetime. That's the whole point of the list. Well, uh, is that the point of the question? Is the question?
1: I don't is that the point?
2: Think it is. Well, I
1: think because I, I want to take this out into Swarm Country.
0: Oh, do you? <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> I don't think. Why Swarm's would you is...
2: want to visit Swarm Country? I don't think because Swarms it... is worst film.
1: It's not his worst film, but it's, no. a, it's a terrible film that I quite like. Yeah, Jaws
0: of Revenge is 1987.
1: That's 1987. certainly the worst That's film pretty
0: bad. Yeah. Ever made. Um, there's, uh, yeah, Water. Um, I saw a soft spot for Blame It On Rio. Have you seen the tagline know. for that film? For Jaws of Revenge? No, Blame It On Rio. No, what is it? Okay, there are two taglines for Blame It On Rio. Uh, you can blame the night, blame the wine, blame the moon in her eyes, but when all else fails, you'd better blame it on Rio. See, that's okay. And then there's another one She's the hottest thing on the beach. She's also his best friend's daughter. Is that, is that what you were... <laughs> that's, not, that's not no? okay. Okay. No. All right. Okay. I mean, not so good. The question was, what's our best worst film? I, I think we talked about this a little bit in the podcast before. I have a lot of guilty pleasures. I'm a big fan of equilibrium, as, as we all know. Not,
2: not guilty. Not but, guilty, Your Honour. I don't know.
0: There's something perverse to me about sitting down and watching a film that you know is deliberately bad. I guess it's fun when you're with friends and stuff. But I absolutely did not get the cult about The Room. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't understand why people would go willingly to see a movie that is truly shocking.
2: I'll be honest. I haven't seen it. I do want to go to the Prince Charles or somewhere and uh, and sit down and watch it with an audience. I think that might be interesting. I will report back if that
0: happens. Mm. Project X isn't on this list.
2: It's not. I I agree with you about the Love Guru. Um, the Love Guru genuinely made me doubt my entire history of Mike Myers watching mm. I had to go back and watch Austin Powers and Wayne's World and see if they had been funny in the first place. I was like, yeah. was, I, was, I, was I wrong? Was I deluded? How could this man make th- that
0: I had exactly the same reaction after Mrs. Brown's Boys, the movie. I had to go back and rewatch every episode of the TV show just to remind myself that there was brilliance. No, 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 I didn't. No, no, I no didn't. Okay. But yeah, okay, let's move on. Uh, here's one from email uh, Chris Crowther asks After watching the race against the clock to save humanity at the end of Peabody and Sherman the other day, I wondered what's your favorite countdown sequence? Should generally include a bleeping sound. And an electronic red display, but not essential, mine, a.k.a. Chris Crowther's, is a countdown to the destruction of the Earth at the end of Flash Gordon.
2: Flash, I love you, but we've only got 15 seconds to save the Earth.
0: 15 seconds, you say? Well, wow.
2: <laughs> No. <laughs> anyway, that is a great long. one. That is an absolutely great countdown. I like Galaxy Quest, which kind of doesn't count because it's sort of taking the mickey out of the hall thing, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I also like the scene at the beginning of The Rock with the doll that's about to explode they're in the sort of containment chamber um, and there's a bit of a countdown there I don't remember if there's an actual ticking clock but there's certainly bleeping noises um, and I think that's, uh, that's a really good and a really tense and a really funny scene so those would be my favourites.
1: I'm a, I'm a big fan of the bomb in Naked Gun 2.5 that's awesome.
2: That was good when
1: he just sort of trips over the plug um, <laughs> and all of Run Lola Run I think would count as a countdown, wouldn't it? It would, I suppose. That's a good movie. There's a, there's a, a and of course, of course, the end of Predator.
2: Of course, which
1: is the the, the tension is slightly diluted by the fact that I, what is going on? Well, you I can't don't tell the numbers. Know what yeah. they're in, number? it's some sort of like crazy bomb thing from the Apple Store on the planet, whatever.
0: And uh,
2: Predator,
1: yeah, Predator. But what the hell's going on? How does he even read
0: it? If he, that's a good point Yeah, I always wonder he, how Schwarzenegger knows what's happening at that point like, you know, he
1: doesn't he stands yeah.
0: there for like 30 seconds
1: well, like he, can, he can tell
2: it's some kind of countdown he just doesn't know which number is which
1: yeah but it's only when the when the, when the predator starts laughing well yeah tackling, that he gets wind of the fact and then instead of being a bomb and immediately it starts off as a sort of a weird weather system doesn't it like lightning and stuff coming out as he's running to give him enough
0: time to run away hmm
2: that's true, yeah. And then I guess. It, it's, but it's a weird bomb, isn't it? It's just you know, it's good. It's, it's a special case.
0: But it's great. <laughs> I, I I do love that one, and it, they play on it very nicely in Predator Two, where it starts to do it again, and then Danny Glover cuts off its wrist. Good movie. Good movie. Good movie. <laughs> good guilty pleasure. That one uh, I really like. There's a it's not like a countdown to, dest- to destruction or anything, but I love the countdown in Aliens when they're on the dropship. Uh, and they're about to go down to LV426 for the first time. And Pharaoh's counting down, and the drums, James Horner's drums, are pounding away. And you know, you got Hudson mm. doing his usual shit. And then the, the sound just drops out for a second, and the dropship just goes down. Very, very cool indeed. Yeah. Uh, Bond is really good at countdowns. His greatest one for me is uh, Goldfinger. So I like stuff like that. Yes, countdowns. Yeah. All I guess, good. I mean,
2: there are films which are entirely countdown. Doctor Strangelove, maybe. Mm-hmm. That kind of thing, but uh, but yeah, no. Those, if if we're actually talking bleeping sound being necessary, then yeah, I think we've covered the best one. A little flashing light that blinks. Let's Wrath
0: hope.
1: of Khan. I have to say that isn't the Genesis as a device. And I don't know that film that well, but if they don't stop it in time, it starts playing invisible. Touch or they're
2: they're trying to get the they're galaxy. trying to get out of they're trying to get out of range as it uh, as it. As the countdown t- goes to it going off, yes, and of course they're only able to because Spock gets the engine working again. Yes, <laughs> yes,
1: you know there's the a, there's wrath a good, of John Harrison.
0: There's a good countdown in uh, in Star Wars, obviously, where you know the uh, the evil empire just about to blow the hell out of the rebels and.
2: Oh yes, coming, coming around, around the curve of the planet. Around,
0: yeah, and mm. uh, then they get blown to smithereens. Uh, uh, I, I don't think we've touched on every countdown, but no. you know, if you think if, if something comes to us during the podcast, we'll we'll mention it. So do send in your questions via Twitter. We're at Empire Magazine. Uh, use the hashtag Empire Podcast so we won't see it. Uh, you can Facebook us at Empire Magazine and you can email us at podcast at empireonline.com. Do make your questions good, obviously. All right, time now for our first uh, guest. Uh, Dean Dubois is... Uh, did I get it right again? I think so. Dean DeBlois.
2: Dean DeBlois.
0: Yeah, it's like it's like, it's like you're air-kissing someone. DeBlois. Yeah. That's a better way. yeah. We should okay. air-kiss him. It's he's extravagant. Lovely. Okay, he's lovely, yeah. He's something of a giant in the world of animation as well. He wrote Mulan. Uh, he wrote and directed Lilo and Stitch. And he co-directed uh, How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, that movie was an unexpected phenomenon. Now he struck out on his own to direct the sequel, which is called...
2: How to Train Your Dragon 2.
0: They took a long time to think that one up, didn't they? He came to London recently, spoke to Helen and Ali Plum, who's not here, he's in Dublin.
2: Just before we start, I mm. should make clear that when this was recorded, we hadn't actually seen the entire film yet. We'd only seen about an hour of it. It does contain spoilers for the first How to Train Your Dragon, but not for the second beyond that first hour.
0: If you wonder what the spoilers are, there's a dragon and it gets trained.
2: Mm.
0: Is that it? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, pretty much.
3: Enjoy the interview with Dean DeBlois. We, we were just talking before the mic started about fans who have seen the feature in the, in, in the magazine and have excitedly been looking at it and talking about it. Can I talk to you before we even begin about the fans? Because I think there's something special, the How to Train Your Dragon fans. The stuff on Tumblr, the artwork. When I was in, uh, in DreamWorks, there was this ginormous plushie about the size of an armchair, which was made by a fan. What's the strangest or best
4: piece of fan memorabilia that you've been informed of? I think that might be it. Yeah. I think the the one that you saw was was in my room. Yeah, it was created uh, by a fan who just a, a, up until that point he had never sewn before, and so his mother taught him how to sew. And it's just it's the most um, appealing and correct plush I've ever seen. And he did he's done several of them, and you know there are a whole bunch of people that would like to pay him to have their own version of it. But I think he's he's created about five or six of them and. He gifted me one of them, and I'm really, really, really happy with it.
3: I, I hate to, you know, call you out, but I almost don't believe you. That is too good a thing for somebody who's just learned how to do a thing. That is,
4: well, that's what he claims. That's what he claims. I mean, he seems like a really uh, dedicated and uh, talented individual, and and so certainly, just to capture that amount of appeal, and it, and it is a very subtle shape isn't it (laughs) to sort of capture in a fabric pattern and stitch it together he had he had several botched attempts by the way yeah sure sure
3: um and with that in mind with this giant toothless in your office does it serve as a reminder that you're making a movie that people are really 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 looking forward to
4: I mean it's daunting isn't it (laughs) I think um, I I find it very heartening to know that uh, there are people out there that really like the movie because we did as well and It's dangerous to try to second guess the audience. Um, I never like doing it. And I don't like to be part of conversations where we are second guessing an audience and making alterations based on what we think a certain demographic is going to like. Uh, I'm always trying to take the the attitude of making a film that I would be proud of that I would want to go see and, and pay money to see and hopefully that my collaborators uh, also, you know, would pay to see. So the intent is just to try to create uh something that speaks to a broad a broad audience and not to exclude kids but not to pander to them um but also not to exclude any adults in the audience and everywhere between but I think it was it was quite a surprise to see just how many how many people um have have taken what we've done with the first film and celebrated it with fan. Art and fan fiction, and
3: you've not been approached at Comic Con by somebody dressed as Hiccup or anything, have
4: you? I have, I have. Yeah, there are quite a few people actually at the at Comic Con who who dressed up and really well, by the way. Like they, um, there's there's one woman who does Roughnut, and she's fantastic. Like because she, I mean, she's she's aware of of her physical features, you know. So she is she's tall and she has sort of longer features, and so she's like, I'm going to be Roughnut, and she does it with such conviction, it's incredible
2: the books are radically different i mean i i got you know i was very excited to read the book after i'd seen the film because i loved the film so much and it's co- it's a completely different experience so i was i was kind of curious um what's what was the story when you came in because i know there were radical radical changes so what what was what was the biggest one that you made what was the biggest nut you had to crack
4: well i joined the film after it had been in its uh second year it went through two years of its three year production schedule trying to Uh, be a very faithful adaptation to Cressida's first book and along the way they decided that they needed to create somewhat higher stakes to hopefully broaden the audience and so it became a a mix of new material and Cressida's book when we were brought into the mix and by we I mean Chris Sanders and I we were encouraged to depart uh, from the narrative entirely and Jeffrey Katzenberg sat down with us um, on my first day there and he said I want a father and son story I want a David and Goliath ending, and I want a harry Potter tone and If you give me those three things then i'll, I'll be happy but it needs to it needs to have the tropes of an action adventure film
3: were those three things on a sign above your desk because <laughs> these those seem so specific, like at the same time wide but there they are.
4: those are my three mantras go They were incredibly helpful to us actually because we had read the books and we had read previous screenplays, and so we we knew we knew the material that had been considered and just hearing that sort of th- those were three firm fence poles that were um, hammered into the ground for us. Yeah. And I think we were able to be really creative within those constraints. Yes. I think, yeah, my proudest moment on the first movie was that, uh, the getting away with, um, Hiccup sustaining an injury that, that meant he didn't make it through unscathed because everyone anticipated there would be such a backlash to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, after our first test screening, where we really we really put that idea to the test, it was only in storyboards. By the way, uh, the 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 parents of the focus group rose to defend it. I think they sensed that it was a, a precarious element and uh, maybe removed, uh, but they they defended it in 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 that they they really felt strongly that it, it had a positive thing to say. And then there was a kid in the audience who said. Um, I remember him specifically saying, "It's sad because Hiccup lost something, but then he gained so much more." And I yeah. thought, "Well, that it's speaking to everybody," and and there was something really empowering about it. And so I feel really good about the the daring quality of mm-hmm. that. And it it actually um, sort of bolstered my belief that we could go even further with this film.
2: I think most people would give up a leg to have a toothless. I'll be honest, <laughs> genuinely, I'm not even kidding. I think it's a great injustice that I personally do not own a Toothless already.
3: <laughs> I did not know that that was in storyboard form when you showed that footage and, and people reacted that way. That's fascinating. And yeah. is it true that Steven Spielberg was, was the person who suggested that Toothless was in the room when Hiccup woke up?
4: Yes, yes. Our first iteration of that scene was Hiccup waking up on his own, realizing that his leg had been replaced with a prosthetic and then having to take those first few steps on his own. But when he got to the door, he... Th- opened it, he saw that the world had changed and everyone was getting along. Uh, and so when Steven saw the film, he said, I, I loved being part of this private relationship between this boy and this dragon that was largely hidden from everyone else. And he thought it would be a, a really great opportunity to have Hiccup wake up with Toothless by his side so that those first few steps were were leaning on on Toothless. Um, and and so that they, they kind of complement each other, and we actually put in a shot that's very specifically designed to highlight the fact that they are they're both missing missing pieces, but they are uh, they are together as one. Yeah. And you're like, thanks, Stephen. More work for me to do. Brilliant.
2: <laughs> How about then this one? I mean, you've called this the Empire Strikes Back of, of the trilogy, which is obviously catnip to movie fans everywhere. Um, <laughs> dragon nip, possibly, in this case. Why was that in particular, the part two that seemed just like the right fit? Because there are many great part twos, actually. Some some trilogies really kind of hit their stride in the second element. So why, one, why that one in particular?
4: Well, well first of all, I, I should... I should just make a slight correction. I don't want to call this the Empire Strikes back of um of our trilogy in that there's great hubris in that statement. <laughs> I, I, we're aspiring to okay. <laughs> to uh to feel like uh the Empire Strikes back in its in its tone, its balance of humor and stakes and deeper characters and new environments and new characters. so uh, that mix, the way I felt about watching the Empire Strikes Back on the heels of Star Wars and how I felt it was everything that I loved about Star Wars made better and bigger and broader. That's what I hope that people will take away from How to Train Your Dragon 2. Mm. But That's, it's entirely an aspiration. It is not a declaration. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, so what then is is part three?
4: Well, part three is the culmination. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, there's there's something very moving in Cressida Cowell's aspiration to... to Explain what happened to dragons and why they are no more. To take it to the end of the line, and I, th- I think there's something just uh, very, very powerful and emotional about that. And so I would like to, even though our narratives are quite different, I would, I would love to be able to bring it to that same finite conclusion. Is it, you know?
2: is, it is it going to be the ET of the trilogy? Is it going to be a goodbye?
4: Well, I, again, you know that ET is is such a memorable, powerful movie uh, that. That um, you know, if we should be so lucky that, that people would consider it in that same vein, I think we we definitely have a a very emotional and powerful relationship in Hiccup and Toothless, and uh, we're we're we we're we're putting it to the test in this movie, and and we'll continue to do so in the third. But uh, I'm a big fan of stories that bring two disparate characters together and they come colliding into each other's lives and have such a meaningful impact on each other's lives that they'll never be the same once they are separated again and there's something uh, just beautiful about that so I think as a, as a goal I think it's it's both bold and it's, um, it's, it's, it's just very alluring Speaking of which, Lilo and
3: Stitch mm-hmm. I need to talk about <laughs> My first question to you is do you have a, a Mulan poster in your bedroom and my second question is, is, is there a reference to Mulan, possibly somewhere in How to Train Your Dragon 1 that I missed <laughs> that I should look
4: out for? Is there a Chinese restaurant called Mulan's? <laughs> no, I answered a question one. Yes, I do have a Mulan poster, a very poster. Uh, it's not in my bedroom, but it's in my basement. And the no, there is no reference to Mulan. But there is, I guess, in a, in a sort of subtle way, uh, there's something that we learned on Mulan that we've used time and again, which is the idea of creating a character who uh, has who, who embodies the same moments of kind of heroism and um, you know idiocy that we all have. <laughs> so I, th- I think that Hiccup is is much like Mulan in the sense that she she was just as ill-equipped to succeed in her lot in life as a as a dutiful traditional chinese daughter um as as hiccup is to succeed as a big brawny viking they're just not going to make it and so i think that we we the audience are kind of along for the ride waiting for that moment when they realize that that they they can be a better version of themselves if they just kind of look in the mirror and accept who they are
3: how often is be a man um in your head (laughs) because it lives in my brain and i will never get rid of it i
4: know i know it's 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 it is one of those songs that uh unfortunately once you hear it will not go away
2: coming back to lilo and stitch for a minute uh when i first saw toothless i felt like you know that there was a little bit of shared dna there just just a big wide grin i think <laughs> apart from anything else were you kind of conscious of that or is that just what looks friendly to you
4: you're not going to believe it but we weren't entirely conscious of that <laughs> really? uh, and uh, here's here's the truth of the matter toothless was designed by our head of character animation Simon Otto. He did not work on Lilo and Stitch, but he may have been inspired a little bit by Stitch. Uh, if you look at Toothless in profile, he's he's largely a combination of a Black Panther and a salamander, and he has a he has the the head of a cobra, you know. So he's a very snake-like head. You, but if you turn him straight on, then those those uh, lo- those eyes that are set very low in the skull, and and the nose that's a little a little closer to the level of the eyes, and then the big broad mouth, the big gummy mouth. Uh, they do create a, a similarity to yeah. <laughs> to Toothless. But it wasn't intentional, not at first anyway. We recognized it ourselves once we were underway.
2: The other question that I have always had about Lilo and Stitch, and I should make clear at this point, uh, we do lie swearing in the podcast, okay? <laughs> what does Beecham malaquista mean?
4: Oh well, you know, I don't. I don't think there is an English equivalent. It, it's so disgusting that it would, it would, uh, it would make you vomit uh, onto your uh, your equipment right here. Um, yeah, it's it's just sort of a, a silly convention that I, I I just don't think I don't think I could come up with anything that would be as revolting as. Uh, yeah, I did, I did love the little Stitch's robot words.
2: vomiting nuts and bolts when, when Stitch says it. That's brilliant. I, I
3: imagine it being like the Monty Python joke that they unleash on the Germans, and it and it wipes all the Germans out because it's that that good a joke that so they die laughing. <laughs> now, going back to um, Star Wars, just a little bit, they both lose a limb, young Luke and Hiccup, mm. and but what Luke doesn't have is a mechanical piece of apparatus on the end of his limb which can be turned into something amazing. Like you, you see in the footage we saw today, there is fun to be had. It's not quite a Swiss Army knife, but it does a couple of things. What ended up on the draft room floor, shall we say, when it came to the mechanics of his, of his <laughs> different
4: pieces? Yeah. Uh, well, actually, it is pretty much as designed. It, it was meant to, there's a barrel, le- the calf of the prosthetic foot is a rotating barrel, and it accommodates three different feet. One is kind of an ice pick for really slippery terrain. One is a standard walking foot. And then the other is his riding foot, which clips into, into a peg that is on a, a sort of a rocking semicircle that, that can, controls one of the, um, on the prosthetic tail. It controls the uh, up-down movement of it. So, yeah, we actually didn't go very far in all of the different um, the bits and pieces. However, we've had a lot of fun with Gobber's uh, variety of attachments and we built a little rack that carries all of them so um yeah we've we play around with that quite a bit
3: can i ask about the person or persons or foley artist who voices toothless insofar as toothless is voiced i feel personally that a lot of toothless personality is within the utterances mm. what are the origins of them
4: oh okay so the voice of toothless to give him proper credit is randy tom he is our sound designer and uh He's an incredible sound designer. Uh, he works at, at Skywalker Ranch, and he's told us some of the elements that go into Toothless. We haven't heard them all, but a, a big part of it is an elephant um, and his own voice. He actually just, just sort of plays with and alters uh, his own voice. But, uh, yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of elephant in there.
3: I mean, you can't do a good toothless. Then I, I take it. No, no, no. You're not in not meetings going.
4: I want toothless to be like this. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but what we do tell him is we'll we'll say here's the English translation of what toothless is saying in this moment. If he was speaking, um, that he would he would say this, and he would have this attitude about it. Would you pour me a cup of tea? <laughs> yeah Yeah, definitely so it it is absolutely uh, a a part of the the discussion like we try to make sure that the animators know what's being said Mm. so that they can communicate that in pantomime as well
3: i know we should wrap up but my my final question is and i don't want to tell you what to do because you are a director and a very important person and i'm not (laughs) but is there any chance i know you're just finishing off this film that you could maybe sneak in uh, a mushu in And in amongst all of the other dragons, just like a quick tiny one, you can tell me which frame it's in.
4: (laughs) You know, there is a. We're done. We're done. (laughs) Uh, We actually finished animation before I boarded the flight last Thursday to come here. So um, not this movie, but there has been much discussion about about uh, you know the dragons of the world and how many we can accommodate you know in our ever expanding universe of of How to Train Your dragons. So I would love to have you know a Chinese or a Japanese dragon you know our version of it somewhere because we do have um we do have sort of a a breadth of nations and and uh, continents represented in this second film so yeah i want an english dragon too (laughs) anyway thank you so much dean excellent thank you
0: okay time now for some movie news i know there's only two of you but come on we can get through this what what do you have what movie news is there
2: i'd like to bring you a lovely trio of tv news if that's all right
0: It's it's fine.
2: I mean, it's big TV news, I think. Let's start with the perhaps least surprising of the lot, Community. The rallying cry has always been six seasons and a movie. Sixth season is secured. It's going to be Yahoo screen making it after it was cancelled on its old network. Yahoo what now? Yahoo. Yeah, it turns out Yahoo make uh, TV. So we know that now because of Community. So I would say from their point of view buying community has been already been a very sound move because suddenly everybody's like Yahoo! Yahoo for Yahoo!
0: And how do we get this? Is it on, on the internet?
2: Uh, this is on the internet but there are quotes from all involved. It's not just a rumour. It is an actual report. Uh, creator and showrunner Dan Harmon said I look forward to bringing our beloved NBC sitcom to a larger audience by moving it online. Oh burn! I vow to dominate our new competition. Rest easy, Big Bang Theory. Look out, Bang Bus. So, uh... Encouraging stuff there. So um, who's going
0: to come back? Because uh, Jonathan
2: all of them. Banks is
0: going to be—it's going to be busy with Better Call Saul. You'd imagine John Oliver's busy these days doing his thing. Um, Donald well, Oliver probably won't come back, I imagine.
2: Well, I mean, to be honest, the the, the latter two only really came in, in well, I mean. Uh, John Oliver's obviously been in it since the beginning, but he's been in it sporadically. I would imagine he can probably maintain the same level of involvement at least. I don't know whether Better Call Saul will interfere with this. I would imagine there's a, probably a long enough production schedule on that so that he can fit little bits of this in around it, but we will see uh, for Jonathan group. Banks. But the main group, um, their, their contracts were due to end something like the day after this deal was announced, so I think it came just in time to get new contracts signed for all of them so they will be back that's very exciting news
0: more inappropriate sexual chemistry between Jeff and Annie please
2: oh my goodness part 2 TV news Sherlock will return Christmas 2015 what a Christmas present we have in store for us next year but this is going to be a one episode
0: it's good news I guess but also we will have three of them because there will will be three more after that Mm. so that'll probably be 2016 Uh, whether that's the last one I don't really know to be yeah. honest, but uh, I'm intrigued.
2: Yes, uh, I am too. So that was part two of the of the TV news. Part three, for me, the most exciting of all. Neil Gaiman's American Gods mm. has a TV partner. Um, it was in development for a long time at HBO. They couldn't quite get a version they were happy with, or 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 get it to a state that they were happy with, um, and so it sort of went away. Basically, it is now set up again at the Stars Network. Uh, which certainly means that violence and sex will not be an issue, and uh, the pilot is to be written by Brian Fuller, who um, previously made *Pushing Daisies* and is now on the TV version of *Hannibal*, and Michael Green of *Heroes* fame, uh, which would seem like a a reasonably good kind of fit somehow, especially *Pushing Daisies* and *Heroes*. There's a sort of a a thread there that kind of leads towards American gods. For those of you who haven't read it, um, it's the story of a man called Shadow who is released from prison to find that his wife has died and gets kind of hired by a mysterious man called Mr. Wednesday and drawn into uh, his schemes which basically span America and involve old gods and new. And it's very good indeed.
0: It is. It is very good indeed. Intriguing. Yeah. Very Promising. Helpful. Cool. Keep an eye on that one. Phil? That's some exciting news. Mm, it is exciting. News. I'm not I'm sure I can feel excited. that. Yeah, oh, come on. You can. you can do it, Phil. <sighs> of course you can. I, I believe open. in you. So what buildings to be build this week, Phil? What this is week. Yeah. In, what's, in the the latest in, what's the latest in architecture? The latest from the architecture
1: scene. Yeah. Hot news from the world of Bond. And when I say hot news, I mean some <laughs> news. And the news is that erstwhile podcast uh, interviewees Neil Purvis and Robert Wade are back in business on the screenplay for Bond 24, the still-untitled Next one, mm-hmm. and uh, John <laughs> Logan, as they call it in the trade, and uh, that that means basically. Well, we're not sure exactly what it means. John Logan, of course, who'd worked with them, not with them, with them, but with them, uh, collectively on Skyfall, um, had done the first draft. And it's obviously needing a bit of a juge. We're not sure exactly what, but they brought back these two old Bond hands. They've been on the franchise for a while. Through thick and some thin as well. Um, obviously, the world is not enough. It's probably not their finest moment. But Skyfall, I think Skyfall It's fair to say, please the please the Bond purists. Time will tell whether, you know, what they've got in store for us. And we probably won't know much more about it for a good while yet. But um, they, they're back in business and they know the franchise inside and out. And... Um, it's got mixed response from our from our forumites, it's fair to say. Um, one comment. Peter Purvis and Virginia Wade would be better.
2: Harsh. Um, that's very harsh.
1: Which I think is harsh, because I don't think Virginia Wade has any obvious grasp of three-act structure or the Bond universe. Does she? No. No.
2: I don't want to malign her here. I mean, no, she could be true. a huge...
1: Who
0: knows? She may have secret hadn't
2: tann- tann-
1: Virginia yeah. Wade, the ex-Wimbledon... That's tape, very
0: harsh. You know, these guys get... It's, it's, it's so weird... They get with a brush for writing uh, a bad Bond film and then when they write good Bond films they get none of the credit. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. Uh, I think a lot of the of the great stuff in Casino Royale and Skyfall is down to them. Yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, they've written some very, very good stuff in some very bad films, and they go through a committee uh, system as well. So you can't pin everything that's bad on no. the of the day on on purpose and wait. Oh,
1: it's a very that was a very tough gig, I think. Skyfall, you know, it had to reinvigorate the franchise. It had to pay a hat tip to Bond history um, for the anniversary. It had to do lots and lots of things, yeah. and I think it pulled them off mostly. There's always a slightly uh, I'll use the word advisedly, but there's always a slightly sort of acid. Tang to to this because there's the kind of criticisms of misogyny and this and that and stuff from the Bond world that people don't necessarily like, mm. which maybe <laughs> not mentioning anyone in particular in this podcast, Helen, but <laughs> yeah, that, maybe that's something that, that probably prevents the writers from getting more credit for the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, does it
0: does this reflect badly on what John Logan's turned out? Possibly, I don't know. Yeah, but this is a way that they you know they 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 um. I think they're the main Bond writers I, I, th- I think they thought they were done with it I honestly I thought they, they did uh, if, if you listen to the, the Skyfall Spotted podcast we did a couple of years ago uh, they seem very very much yeah this, this is it now they're moving forward with John Logan so I don't know I don't know what it means in you know, the I quality think, of Logan's script but. I think
2: sometimes people are like that at the end of you know the franchise or at the end of the, the latest installment of whatever it is they're like no we're not going to do anything I mean, look at you know Michael Bay and Transformers I mean there's millions yeah. of examples of it
0: but they're they're always the first people on
2: yeah, and yeah, other people I know, are brought on
0: to rewrite them whether it's uh, mm, Paul sure. Haggis or, or or John Logan uh, so it's interesting that
2: well I think maybe their specialism has kind of has become the action scenes over, <clears throat> over the years I went to a talk that they gave once a few years ago and they were talking about the, the challenge of you know kind of doing what you've done before not in the sense of necessarily making it bigger for the sake of it but doing something different and fresh and original I think and they have proven considerably you know they have proven able to do that over mm. the years and I think maybe that's what people are worried about maybe that's the element of the script that they're not happy with maybe they want some slightly different action mm. slightly more action scenes um, and that would explain why, why you, you bring these old hands back on um, yes. even if you like some of what Logan's done you know it doesn't necessarily reflect yeah. badly on him well
1: Logan of course is incredibly talented Oscar winning screenwriter. Um so I can't believe he, you know, it was bad but maybe it wasn't quite what they were looking for. I'm still desperate to know what happened with Quantum of Solace. I just want to know what what the plan was for that and where they were going and where that story was going to take. I just there must have been more. There must be more to that. I know they they threw it out, they jettisoned the whole lot, but there, there has
0: to be yeah it's so weird because it almost makes that movie just a comp- it it's bad it's it a just bad
1: hangs though doesn't it it's, a, it's sort of a hanging chad of a film it doesn't really go it doesn't really end particularly there's more to it and I mm. just don't know where that extra stuff
0: is to be found they must know I think but they, they don't were, want to talk I, about it I think they were building up to a Blofeld type character and now mm. the weird thing is that the, the rights to Blofeld are back with Eon so it'd be interesting to see whether they go that way I just want to throw in a couple of things uh, because we recorded our live podcast Edinburgh last week we recorded it on a Tuesday so there were three days between the podcast recording and the podcast going up during which time it was announced that Shane Black a curse of uh, <laughs> a curse of recording our podcast Shane Black is attached to co-write or shepherd the writing uh, but he will direct in theory uh, the reboot slash sequel is more of a sequel he said to Predator at uh at over a fox, which is fascinating to me, I have to say. As a massive Predator fan, as a huge Shane Black fan, uh, I'm very, very excited about this. Mm. The, the script will be co-written by, or primarily written by Fred Decker, who is the director of The Monster Squad, which is a film from the 80s. It's really, really good fun if you haven't seen it. Um, and Black, and he, he co-wrote that script. He's almost nurturing the career of his old buddy, which is really cool. And of course... Shane Black was Hawkins, the first to die in Predator. So it'd be very interesting to see what he does with uh, with a sequel. Could be fun. Will Arnie be involved? I don't know. Do I want Arnie to be involved? I don't know. Probably not. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I am um, reached out to Black the other day, see whether he'd comment on it, and he says too early to say anything yet. But watch this space, which was very nice of him to say so. Uh, but yeah, cool. Very intrigued. Uh, also, if you're a Hans Zimmer fan he'll be playing that tune from that movie you like and that tune from another other movie you like which sounds a bit like the first tune uh, he'll, be, he'll be playing that at a couple of UK concerts uh, later on this year tickets went and sale today and they're mega expensive huh yeah mega expensive so he's playing a couple of gigs at the Hammersmith Apollo October 10th October 11th and uh, if you want to get tickets I think they're still um, available they're, they're, they're available will online. he be playing the Going for Gold theme do you think god I wish he would he should start with that that'd win be the amazing. crowd over early on that'd be amazing Okay, movie news dispensed with. Now, our second guest drops by. Kira Knightley leads little introduction, of course. She's one of her best and best-known actresses. One of the great things about her is her willingness to embrace the unknown and experiment, which is what she does by singing in John Carney's musical of sorts, Begin Again, alongside Mark Ruffalo. Helen, sigh.
3: <sighs> there we go. Uh,
0: Phil went along to speak to her recently. Now, there was a slight sound snafu. The uh, assembling and recording equipment... Do not go well together. So Phil had to re-record his questions separately. Uh, we auto-tuned them as well, just for the hell of it. Phil, how was it? Was it okay? Yeah, You're... sorry about that, everybody. Yeah. We haven't listened to it yet. Kira Knightley sounds good. Yes. Phil may not sound strange. Not so st- good. Strange. Weird. Extraterrestrial. Okay. All right. No worries. But enjoy the Keira Knightley interview.
1: In this movie, you play a character who, if not an aspiring pop star, then is certainly a musician who finds herself thrust into a position of fame. Now, I know you've said on a number of occasions that you have no interest in becoming a pop star whatsoever, but if Kira Knightley were a pop star, what would be on your rider?
5: On a rider? Can I have puppies? Don't they have things like that? Who is it? Like, somebody has puppies and kittens.
1: Uh, I think Mariah Carey has. Yeah, uh, yeah.
5: Awesome. Can I have tigers as well?
1: Yeah, you can have tigers. Uh, Wouldn't that be a bit dangerous?
5: Well, I don't know. Would that add a certain spice to the entire thing? Oh, maybe the tiger would eat the puppies and the kittens, which would be kind of gruesome, but sort sort of, again, amazing before a pop show. I mean, you want it to be as ridiculous as possible, right?
1: I guess you don't want the star to be mauled before the gig.
5: No, but again, I think you know it, it might add a certain something to the performance
1: and uh, what kind of performer would you be sort of Katy perry style
5: absolutely i think you have to be i would want a circus
1: what was the first gig you went to
5: i don't remember um i don't remember i think it was pulp i think it was pulp when i was very small
1: Were you an indie kid?
5: I wasn't really an anything kid. I mean, I was like a, can I read in the corner kid? I didn't, I mean, I think I accidentally went to a pulp gig, I think because my parents were really into them. And my brother was probably really into them because he's a big music fan. So I, I think I probably got dragged along and went, oh, that's nice. But actually, I saw them again at a festival in Belgium, like about two years ago, when I could actually, I mean, when I wasn't about nine and could really respond to things like that. And he was um, he's the best frontman I've ever seen. He's absolutely amazing.
1: Uh, that's Jarvis Cocker, of course.
5: Jarvis Cocker, that would be, from Pulp. He's got an amazing voice and an amazing persona. And very, very funny. But, well, that's on stage, absolutely. And he kind of climbs up the amps. And he's got that amazing sort of long body that, yeah, he's, he was amazing. But I wouldn't want to be that kind of a pop star. I definitely want to be a Katy Perry kind of a pop star. With the twizzly tits and, and the kind of, yeah, lots of... Um, what is it? Fireworks she has, doesn't she? And people in lighting up suits. And tigers, obviously. I mean, she doesn't, but I would. We're coming up with a good show right now.
1: So, of course, you co-starred in this movie with uh, Mark Ruffalo, who uh, everyone loves. Um, what did you guys bond over?
5: Well, he lives in upstate New York. Well, he lives in New York, who knows? He's definitely in New York a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, what did we bond about? We just had a lot of fun. He's just, he's amazing. You know, he's a very, very funny, very intelligent politically extraordinary man I mean his, his whole work in trying to uh, go against fracking and everything like that so he, he spent a lot of time explaining to me all of his things and he was also he's huge on social media which obviously I'm not in any way so he was sort of he's very passionate about all of that and using it for political activism and, and everything and, um, and he's a very very interesting individual
1: Are you a fan of his work as the Hulk?
5: I've never seen the Avengers
1: <laughs> So what did you tell him?
5: I think I lied yes I'm sure he's wonderful it's the Hulk though so I mean I don't think we talked about each other's work particularly do you know the the film that I loved of his the most was the one um, with Sarah Polly did she direct it which is about when she's dying I can't remember what the name of the film is but she's writing a list of things to do to make sure that that her family are all right and she's trying to set it all up it's amazing I can't remember the name of the film
1: that's uh, I think it's my life without me
5: Sarah Polly is absolutely amazing yeah
1: of course you were in the Pirates of the Caribbean films Um, would you do you have have any interest in being in a big blockbuster again? Uh, do you have Jerry Bruckheimer's number even?
5: No, I don't think so. I wonder if he has a phone. I sort of think it might be telepathy.
1: Or flying monkeys.
5: Yes, definitely flying monkeys. Oh, good, we've got tigers <laughs> and flying monkeys. <laughs> Save her from the tigers. Um, am I going to do a blockbuster again? I mean, never say never. It's I, I prefer doing sort of smaller films. They're more fun. You have to work harder. <laughs> There's less sort of sitting around, you know, and I get quite bored sitting around in trailers you know i like i like to be kind of constantly busy and i think that's what i love about making the kind of smaller budget films is you have to hit the ground running and you just go 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 and and i love that you know saying that i think there are that the technology that there is now is is really extraordinary and if they can marry kind of like a great story with that i think that you could get something really really special so if i find anything like that then i'll say yeah
1: of course you're also in the phantom menace and that was shot on a very sort of heavily green screen environment now they're shooting star wars in a much more kind of in-camera practical effectsy world does that make it a lot more fun as something to be a part of as an actor
5: yes definitely i think green screen is one of the most difficult things i mean it is in fact one of the most difficult things to work with because it sort of sucks the energy out of anything and also you don't know what's going on behind you but it's very you know very simply put I, there was definitely an experience in, in Pirates where nobody told me that there was a sea sea monster behind me. And I remember watching it thinking, I wish you'd told me that because I might have... I don't know looked at it or something reacted in some way so yeah it can be it can be very very tricky but kind of exciting as well
1: i guess that's the kind of thing that could affect your approach to a scene
5: i mean it definitely it definitely does and would affect your approach to a scene yes absolutely
1: now later this year we're seeing you alongside benedict cumberbatch in the alan turing movie the imitation game which looks terrific What else can we see you in, in the near future?
5: Laggies, yes.
1: That's kind of a strange name for a film. What exactly is a laggy?
5: No, I didn't actually know, and I felt so stupid that I felt like I couldn't ask when we were actually making it until luckily somebody else asked, and a laggy apparently is L.A. slang for somebody that can't quite get their act together. I don't think we have a word for it. Somebody that needs to pull themselves together. (laughs) We don't, do we? (laughs) I don't think so, so that's what a laggy is. And
1: are you playing a laggy?
5: I'm playing a laggy. I'm playing a laggy. You're definite laggy, yeah.
1: Well, we're looking forward to seeing Kira laggy then. Thank you so much for joining us in the Empire Podcast booth, Kira Knightley.
5: Thank you, <laughs> thank you very much.
0: Now onto the reviews and what a week it promises to be at the multiplex. Let's start uh, with a quick mention. By the way, people were wondering where the Mrs. Brown's Boys to movie review uh, was last week on the live podcast. We hadn't seen it,
2: but you went to see it, Chris yourself, I did, didn't I you? I did go. You paid to your it. own money. Well,
0: yes. Here's the real thing about it. It's a dreadful, dreadful film. Okay. As bad as you might have expected it would be. Yeah. It is. Uh, I gave it a one-star review. Uh, it's on the website. I basically ranted about it for six hundred words. You did, rants. You have rants is strong. Long, rants, rant a strong word. rants a strong word. Rants strong word. It's a low. It's a, It's It's a. It's a. It's a really, really badly made film. Badly written. Badly acted horrendously directed it feels like it's made by competition winners it, it really does it feels like it's made by people who just found some equipment and just decided to put on hey let's put on a show right here uh some of the performances are truly, truly dreadful having said that i think a lot of people are me of absolute hatred of this film i didn't hate it genuinely did not hate it it just wearied me it wearied me because this movie is uh, uh, as we now know subsequently is the uh, biggest film in UK and Ireland over the last week, made more money, uh, made almost as much money in this opening weekend as Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa, a film with more invention in its little toe than this movie has in its entire body, uh, made in its entire run. And it just, it, it wearied me because it's so bad. It's so bad. Uh, I cannot recommend that you don't watch it highly enough, if that makes any sense. <laughs> that really didn't. It but didn't okay. Make sense. <laughs> okay. Um, so there we go. Let's move on uh, and talk about films that are out this week. Uh, Let's start with a Melissa McCarthy vehicle. Tammy, which she plays a slacker whose life begins to head in an unexpected direction when she hooks up with her grandmother, played by Susan Sarandon, who's about, what, 20 years older? 24. 24 years older than Melissa McCarthy. Okay, interesting. It's written and directed by McCarthy's husband, Ben Falcone, who was the uh, airport... Air Marshal. Air Marshal. Yeah, Yeah. and Bridesmaids. Bridesmaids. Very, very funny guy in that. This is McCarthy's first major solo lead. She's had a number of... uh, team-up vehicles with Jason Bateman, Sandra Bullock, ever since Pridesmaids uh, launched her into the stratosphere. So How does this one go down, Helino? Uh,
2: not well, I'm afraid. I have all the goodwill in the world towards Melissa McCarthy. I think she's wonderful. I, I like Ben Falcone as well, from, from what I've seen of him. He's always been funny. He's in this uh, briefly as her boss at the beginning. And basically, we start with uh, Tammy having a spectacularly bad day. You know, she um, She's driving along. She has a, a minor car accident is late to work Uh, Ben Falcone fires her she gets home to find her husband is kind of having an affair with a neighbour in a scene which is actually quite nicely played and then she marches off to two doors down where her mother and grandmother live and and asks for their help and her grandmother says you know you can borrow my car if you take me with you and the two of them then set off on a road trip anyway it's it's I mean, it suffers from baffling casting decisions. Really, really baffling. I think Susan Sarandon is, is lovely. I like her. She, she's clearly trying her best and having fun with this role. And obviously, if you're going to go on a, on a road trip, take Susan Sarandon. I mean, that's
0: just 101. Well, those road trips tend to end badly, don't, don't well, they? Well, that
2: one time. Okay. Um, <laughs>
0: just that one time we drove off a cliff. <laughs> it's just that but, one thing.
2: But I mean, you know, she really doesn't look much older the Melissa McGrath. She does not look like a grandmother and she's supposed to be, you know, she's supposed to be a frail old lady who is sick and who needs her medicine. And you're kind of going, well, no, she's Susan Sarandon. Look at her. She's beautiful. She's in the peak of health. Um, you've dyed her hair grey and mm-hmm. given her horrible curls, but she's clearly not that old. It does suffer. I mean, you needed a Betty White or you needed a, I think they originally went for Shirley McLean, who can, you know, who is a little bit older and can play older still and that, that could have worked better. But it that honestly took me out of the film quite a bit. And then there are just really, really bad and awkward kind of changes of tone i mean tammy mm. when we meet her is a disaster awful upsetting hair and skin and just looking just dreadful um and again mccarthy is is a very pretty lady actually and and they've just made her look utterly awful and then she kind of and she's it, portrayed as very stupid she's portrayed as making bad decisions soups and nuts no question about it and then suddenly she just Turns during the film and there's no there's no gradual progression there's no learning there's no curve there's yeah. just a change yeah. for no obvious reason and then they make decisions where they've clearly put stuff in because they find it amusing but they haven't actually paid any attention to the story so for example there's a moment where she is driven and you've seen it in the trailer to try and rob a fast food store to get some money that she desperately needs so she, you can see her in the car psyching herself up this is clearly kind of a dramatic moment there's a little bit of pathos there and then she does this ridiculous kind of gangster dance as she's crossing the parking lot from the car to the restaurant and I mean what are we supposed to take from this You know, it it completely undermines any character moment, any drama that there might have been so yeah, I find it just a complete and utter mess I'm afraid, you know, funny moments I mean with a cast this good, we've also got Gary Cole in there, we've got Mark Duplass Um, Alison Janney is her mother, she's 11 years older than McCarthy, Uh, you know Great, great people, and it just doesn't take off. So, two stars from us. Um, I, I just hope she, you know, tightens up the script in the future. Yeah. If they're, they're going to write and direct, fine, but just really know what you want to say and I say just,
0: it. I just think Hollywood's mistreating Miss McCarthy horrendously. They just seem to pigeonhole her. And ever since *Bridesmaids*, she's essentially played the same character in yeah. the last three or four films.
2: Well, and
0: well, I, I, sorry, I just think I think she's an incredibly talented mm. comedian and an incredibly talented actress. Uh, you know, I don't watch Mike and Molly religiously but the episodes I have seen of that show she plays a much sweeter smarter funnier nicer yeah. character in that and weirdly enough I, I read a thing uh, that the showrunner on that show Chuck Laurie, who, um and the other showrunners on that show uh, have recalibrated the, the show ever since Bridesmaids or in the last season to make her more coarse and and caustic, and she doesn't
2: need to be. I mean, yeah. I, the thing is, I actually went home from watching this and watched her in uh, Gilmore, an episode of Gilmore Girls, mm. where she is lovely. Uh, she plays a lovely character. She, you know, she looks lovely, and she is still incredibly funny. And it can be done, and there is absolutely no need for this kind of craziness. And I think, uh, you know, I think that TV has served her much better than film in that sense. Mm. But the sad thing is, in this case, like it's nobody else's fault. Melissa McCarthy and Ben Falcone wrote the script together, he directed it, you know, she's a producer I think on it with with um, Will Ferrell and Adam McKay's company. She kind of does take the responsibility for this, yeah. she has to, but but yeah, she deserves better give, you know, give yourself better, do yourself better Melissa, honestly.
0: It'll make millions. It probably will <laughs>
2: I, just, I just, you know, I think it will burn off a lot of goodwill towards her, that's my even, even if this one does well, it may hurt the next one, so hopefully that's not the case
0: Indeed, We gave it two stars, two stars for Tammy. Not a good week for comedy, it has to be said, except for the next film, the one hundred year old man. He climbed at the window, and disappeared. Uh, it's a Swedish comedy.
2: Yeah, it is. Turns out that's a thing.
0: It's just it's a thing. <laughs> you know, as anyone who's ever had to put something together, something from IKEA, will know, <laughs> Swedish and comedy do not go well, unless of course you're all you're all standing back laughing silently. It's,
2: where's the screw? Where's the screw? I would say that this is a comedy that also does include, you know, gang warfare, uh, world wars, uh, you know, conspiracies uh, and so on. So there's still some Swedish elements in there. You know, it's not all comedy. (laughs) Uh, But I mean, the the title gives you kind of the premise of the plot. Uh, A hundred year old man does climb out a window and does disappear. (laughs) But he falls in with some unlikely people. He falls in with another old man, a a younger uh, couple of people and an elephant. Naturally. Um, naturally. Um, and they travel around Sweden. He also ends up with a, a suitcase full of drug money, uh, which leads him to the problems I mentioned with the gang warfare. But we also see flashbacks across his lifetime. And you see what he's been in, sort of getting up to for the past 100 years. And that's where the sort of the charm and the sort of picturesque nature of this story really comes through. Because it turns out that he fought in the Spanish Civil War and uh, met General Franco. It wow. uh, turns out that he uh, was part of the Manhattan Project <laughs> after the war hmm. and advised them on the development of the nuclear bomb, kind of by accident, really. Turns out he then became involved in the Cold War, uh, got drunk with Stalin, etc., etc. So it a just bit goes on and on. It a little bit. It's a little bit, almost Forrest Gumpy in a way, yeah. but I would say it has a lot of charm and a lot of kind of. Um, gentleness about it there's a kind of a sense of it he's a he's an innocent sort of a hero he's he just kind of takes everybody at face value if they like a drink he probably likes them and and he just kind of goes on like that so um it's a sweet little film it doesn't i'll be honest amount to a huge amount um but it's kind of absurd and uh, and funny gently funny and uh, and yeah nicely made so we give it three stars
0: three lovely stars but that's just called The 100-Year-Old Man, shall we? That's just, yeah, that's probably uh, yeah, quicker. Call it a day, uh, at that one. Uh, let's move on now to uh, one of the other major releases of the week, which is Noel Clarke's The Anomaly, which is a sci-fi thriller which he stars. He also directs as a soldier who undergoes a mind-bending transformation every nine minutes or so. It has an interesting cast, including the likes of Ian Somerhalder uh, and his pretty blue eyes. And uh, Brian Cox, who was on this podcast last week. Unbelievable.
1: Phil. Noel Clark's kind of—he's kind of created a one-man niche, hasn't he, of making films that are that are that are Hollywood on a on a budget, on a shoestring, on a, not even really a shoestring, more just a tiny tiny, just the bit at the end of the shoestring, <laughs> in the UK. And this one has big ambitions. It's it's billed as kind of Memento meets born. Clark plays this guy. He's got post-traumatic stress disorder. Wakes up in uh, in the back of a van. Uh, as you do, and uh, he basically regains his own sort of sentience for nine minutes and 47 seconds, specifically, um, every once in a while. The rest of the time, he's being controlled by <gasps> a dark
2: forces. Is it Ian Summerholder?
1: Uh, yeah, shoot, how
2: did you know?
1: <laughs> it is the Vampire Diaries' own Ian Summerholder and another shadowy figure.
2: Ooh. Anymore. You
1: don't know who that is. Is Brian Cox? Oh, 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 come on! What is going on here? So that's that's basically the gist of it. Um, he is being put to to work doing things that we've seen him do in Star Trek Into Darkness: nasty, nefarious, terror-y type things, and uh, and. Can he get out of it? Can he? Can he? Can he get to the get to the crux of the matter? Get his brain back? Um, who knows? Uh, you find out if you go and see it, which we wouldn't necessarily recommend because we gave it two stars. It's got big ambitions, mm-hmm. doesn't really deliver on them. Spit sluggish and ponderous. The action sequences don't really uh, don't really have the kind of the the sizzle of a Matrix, for instance, and. Uh, it's a bit so-so, I'm afraid to say. We gave it two stars.
0: Okay, but uh, I guess he's, you know, he's, a, he's a one-man brand, isn't he? As you said, he's, he produces, he writes, he directs, he acts. So, and he gets stuff made, mm-hmm. and that's uh, intriguing. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, let's hope he it makes does commercial, well anyway, so Yeah, he, he makes commercial British films as well. Get some more say, money going. A rare thing. Uh, okay, it would be remiss of me as a massive Beatles fan not to mention A Hard Day's Night, the 50th anniversary reissue of the Fab Four's first movie. Uh, it's going to be out in limited release this week. Uh, it's been remastered. It's looking better than ever. If you've never seen it, it's it's wonderful. It's a great snapshot of the Beatles. John, Paul, as a, as I say, I'm a huge fan. So it's John Paul, Kenny, and uh, Birdie. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's It's close enough. Um, John Paul, George, and Ringo. And it's it's just great fun. It's great fun. We- Amazing soundtrack. You get a real sense of their personalities. Real sense of the sardonic banter and their and this just gambling, freewheeling. But Sprit through London is great.
2: So just to put this in context for the young people listening, young this people. is the one direction of their day, right?
0: Oh my god! <laughs> I, do I have to even have to who the Beatles are to people?
2: No, because no, they've played. No, I just want to no. upset you by saying that.
0: <laughs> no, because they played instruments, Helen, and they wrote their own music. Oh, you've, oh there you go. Oh, you've oh torn you are it in a fight with the Directioners you? now. I'll fucking take them on. Come on. If no, I won't. There's,
2: lots of them. <laughs> there's lots of
0: them. There's too many of them.
1: There's, there's a, far too many. There was a very interesting piece written by Christopher Columbus in the 500 Greatest Movies issue, which was a few years back, um, about this movie. Which, if you've got a copy, Fish It Off Your Shelf, mm. um, in which he says that this was the film that kind of inspired him to become the director he was. He's not probably the only director. No, who, Peter Jackson's a big fan as who, well. Who, who would say that, um, but he said this is the one that, sedu- that sort of seduced him to British culture. And uh, and kind of head him head him on the path to Harry Potter. Yeah. So if you like Harry this, Potter,
0: here it is. This is go. where it started. Amazing stuff. Hard days Life, Five stars for that. Uh, and that is it for this week's Empire podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun we will be joined by the great Richard Linklater uh, director of one of the year's best films Boyhood and also Irish actor Jack Rayner star of Transformers Age of Extinction which is one of the year's best Transformers films uh, until last time it is goodbye from Phil DuBlois. <laughs> <laughs> it's goodbye it's goodbye from Helen Dubloi and it's goodbye from me I'm off to learn how to pronounce Dean Dubloi Dean Dubloi Dean
2: DeBlois Dean Dubloi close enough
0: See you next week.